Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about one of the most iconic planes of World War II, the P-38 Lightning. First, he tells the unlikely tale of how such a radical design even made it to production. And then he tells the story of possibly the best pilot to ever fly in one, Richard Ira Bong, Ace of Aces. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Eighty-three years ago, First Lieutenant Benjamin Kelsey of the United States Army Air Corps took off in an experimental Army aircraft from March Field in Riverside, California, on what would be a very exciting flight that marked the debut of one of the iconic aircraft of the Second World War. There was only ever one Lockheed XP-38, and yet it would change the face of aircraft design in the course of the war. The February 11th, 1939 flight of the XP-38 deserves to be remembered. United States fighter aircraft design lagged in the period between the wars, limited both by flawed strategic vision and limited funds. Aviation writer Michael O'Leary wrote in a 2005 edition of Air Classics magazine, During the early 1930s, the United States Army Air Corps had a motley collection of combat aircraft. The fighters of the day were little more than glorified sport aircraft built for a style of war that would never happen. Author Warren Bodie explained in his 1991 book, The Lockheed P-38 Lightning, It Goes Like Hell, that the U.S. Army Air Corps in the 1930s had a bomber mentality. Politicians in the military hierarchy looked upon pursuit airplanes as the tool for stirring up public interest in the Air Corps at air shows. After all, with the Navy offshore and the American continent so far from any possible aggressor, pursuit aircraft would never be a viable requirement. They were. Expensive toys. U.S. production of fighter aircraft lagged behind European rivals. Plain Talk, a newsletter of the War Eagles Air Museum of Santa Teresa, New Mexico, explains, In the mid-1930s, the Army and Navy fought bitterly over what little procurement money was available. There was virtually no interest in developing new technology. Most aircraft in service were obsolete. However, the newsletter notes, as international tensions increased in Europe and as Japan continued to build up forces in Asia, some U.S. military planners realized that the still-isolationist nation was in a bad position. Two of the men who helped effect change were Lieutenants Benjamin Kelsey and Gordon Seville. Kelsey had earned an engineering degree from MIT and a commercial pilot's license before joining the Army Air Corps in 1929. In 1934, he was assigned to the Air Corps Materiel Command at Wright Field, near Dayton, as the fighter project officer in the engineering section, making him responsible for the Air Corps fighter aircraft development. Seville had served in the Army Reserve in the infantry before becoming a flying cadet in the Army Air Service in 1926. In 1934, he was an instructor at the Air Corps Tactical School at Maxwell Field, Alabama, and was on the Army board responsible for aircraft procurement. In 1937, Kelsey and Seville collaborated on the creation of two circular proposals, which are sets of performance goals that are sent to manufacturers for new interceptor fighters. Circular Proposals X-608 
and 609. Bodie writes that the proposals were designed to avoid strict Air Corps limits on pursuit aircraft that were a result of Depression decade thinking, related and unrelated pressures, and numerous financial impingements. Notable among these, Kelsey complained, was that American fighters were geared to a peacetime concept. Armament was limited to about 500 pounds, arbitrarily consisting of one caliber and one caliber machine guns and the ammunition for them. Kelsey and Seville agreed that the Air Corps needed aircraft with far more horsepower and firepower, anticipating a need for a thousand pounds of armament to overwhelm adversaries. Kelsey explained, there were simply no research and development funds available for development of the required aircraft, at least as a pursuit-type airplane. Seville and I were in total agreement that some special gimmick was needed if we were ever hope to launch our joint pet project. Bodie contends that their solution was not really innovative. Audacious, yes. Kelsey explained, we merely invented the interceptor category, at least in the American vernacular. This category had absolutely nothing to do with the European term pertaining to fast-climbing short-range bomber interceptors. Our nomenclature was aimed at getting a thousand pounds of armament on board versus the standard 500 pounds. The proposals, 608 for a twin-engine aircraft and 609 for a single-engine aircraft, were radically more demanding than any previous U.S. Army Air Corps proposals, including a 360-mile-per-hour airspeed at 20,000 feet, 290-mile-per-hour airspeed at sea level, the ability to sustain full power for one hour at 20,000 feet, reach 20,000 feet in six minutes, and take off and land within 2,200 feet while clearing a 50-foot obstacle. The aircraft were to use one or two Allison V-12 liquid-cooled V-1710 engines using turbo superchargers to allow high-altitude performance. The V-1710 was, Bodie notes, the most powerful engine that was expected to be ready for production in 1938. The website Dave's Warburg's dryly notes, many companies that were approached considered the specifications impossible. Circular Proposal 609 would eventually result in the Bell P-39 Air Cobra, but Circular Proposal 608 would lead to a much more radical design. At first glance, the Lockheed Company seems an unlikely source for a new high-tech, high-performance military aircraft. The company had been formed originally in 1912 by brothers Allen and Malcolm Lockheed, spelled L-O-U-G-H-E-A-D, although the brothers later changed to the phonetic spelling L-O-C-K-H-E-E-D to avoid confusion. The original company had folded in 1920, the victim of the glut of cheap aircraft made available after the end of the Great War. They incorporated again in 1926. While the Lockheed Aircraft Company was moderately successful, the Great Depression devastated the aircraft market and the company went into receivership. A group of investors purchased the company for a mere $40,000 in 1932. The company found success with the Vega and the Model 10 Electra, which gained fame as the model that Amelia Earhart flew on her ill-fated attempt to fly around the world in 1937. Lockheed had nearly missed out to a Bell aircraft design in a previous contract for a heavy fighter and was invited to submit a proposal. But while the Lockheed Model 14 was the basis for the Hudson twin-engine bomber, Lockheed had never produced a combat-type military aircraft. The Aviation History Online Museum writes, Lockheed was new in the military aircraft market. By competing against Boeing and Douglas, many felt that it was overstepping its boundaries. However, this view wasn't shared by Lockheed's president, Robert E. Gross, and he gave the go-ahead for his design team to proceed with a plan. Lockheed's 50-man design team was led by Chief Engineer Hal Hibbert and included designer Kelly Johnson, who had been instrumental in the design of the Model 10 Electra. The museum continues, Hibbert, Johnson, and their design team would come up with one of the boldest departures from traditional American fighter development. 
The website Today in Aviation says of the radical design, it was an unusual configuration with a cockpit and armament in a center nacelle with two longitudinal booms containing the engines and propellers, turbochargers, radiators, and coolers. The Lightning was equipped with tricycle landing gear. The nose strut retracted from the center nacelle and the two main gear struts retracted into bays in the booms. Plain Talk explains that Hibbert and Johnson had considered six unorthodox airframe configurations, including a pusher prop model and an asymmetrical twin boom design with the cockpit in the left boom, before settling on the classic P-38 layout. The plane was sleek and was the first U.S. fighter designed to have all its control surfaces covered in aluminum rather than fabric. The twin boom design offered the pilot a good vantage point, and mounting the armament in the nose was logical, but also offered a special advantage. The Warbird Resource Group explains, Clustering all the armament in the nose was unlike most other U.S. aircraft, which used wing-mounted guns with trajectories set to crisscross at one or more points in a convergence zone. Guns mounted in the nose did not suffer from having their useful ranges limited by pattern convergence, meaning good pilots could shoot much further. A Lightning could reliably hit targets at any range up to 1,000 yards, whereas other fighters had to pick a single convergence range between 100 and 250 yards. The Aviation History Online Museum explains it had twice the power and was almost twice the size of its predecessors. It had four 50-caliber machine guns plus a 20-millimeter cannon, enough firepower to sink a ship, which it sometimes did. In fact, the number of radical design elements might typically have doomed the aircraft in an era when the Army was avoiding radical concepts. The museum argues, in this respect, it was very unusual that the Lightning design progressed beyond the testing stage. Such radical concepts seldom achieved production status. But the simple fact was that the P-38 was needed more than ever. While competitors consolidated, Curtis, Douglas, and Volte submitted proposals, Kelsey was impressed with the Lockheed design. Plain Talks writes, On June 23, 1937, the Air Corps awarded contract number AC-9974 for $163,000 to Lockheed for one twin-engine XP-38 interceptor. Lockheed called it the Model 22. It was the 22nd aircraft design to emerge from the fledgling 11-year-old company, and it was Lockheed's first military contract. But a prototype is only that. As O'Leary notes, the company team was pleased with this, although they realized that the new plane was radical and one aircraft might not lead to production if the design didn't perform as required. Design and construction of the prototype took just over a year and a half, and despite the $162,000 contract, cost the company more than $600,000. Plain Talk writes, The sleek, all-silver prototype rolled out of the factory, shrouded in canvas and in great secrecy, on December 31, 1938. It was trucked to March Field, near Riverside, California, to start flight testing. The XP-38 was 37 feet 10 inches long, had a wingspan of 52 feet and an overall height of 12 feet 10 inches, the testing would be done by Ben Kelsey. The first flight was January 27, 1939, and as is common for a first test flight, revealed stability issues that had to be addressed. The problems were addressed, and Kelsey flew five more times over the next two weeks. Then, a fateful choice. The Aviation Online History Museum notes, The Army decided to lift the wraps of secrecy and schedule the sole prototype for a transcontinental speed dash on February 11, 1939, from Marchfield, California, to Mitchellfield, New York. It was a critical decision that would haunt them for years. There was a particular motivation behind the choice. Plain Talk writes, General Henry H. Hap Arnold, with a strong desire to get the Army Air Corps into the news in a positive manner, ordered Kelsey and the XB-38 to try for a new cross-country speed record. 
a planned transfer of the aircraft to Wright Field near Dayton, Ohio, for official Army testing, grew into a transcontinental dash from Marchfield to Mitchellfield on Long Island, New York. And the XP-38 did not disappoint. The website Today in Aviation writes, Lieutenant Kelsey departed March Field at 6.32 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and flew to Amarillo, Texas for the first of two refueling stops. He arrived there at 12.22 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and remained on the ground for 22 minutes. The XB-38 took off at 12.44 Eastern Standard Time and Kelsey flew onto Wright Field, Dayton, Ohio. He landed there at 3.10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The prototype averaged 340 miles per hour it reached 420 miles per hour during the right field to Mitchell Field segment. Excluding the time for the two refueling stops, the XB-38 had broken the transcontinental speed record set by Howard Hughes in his H-1 racer in 1939. But there was one wrinkle, as the Sunday Times of Zanesville, Ohio wrote on February 12th. A new secret twin-engine Army Pursuit monoplane crashed into a tree on the edge of Mitchell Field, Long Island. As Kelsey approached Mitchell Field, he was placed in a pattern behind some slower training aircraft. He throttled back, and as he attempted to throttle back up to land, the carburetor had iced over and he could not increase power. He crashed into a golf course. Kelsey was not seriously injured, but the prototype was destroyed. The Online Museum of Aviation History laments, The XB-38 crashed after only 16 days, with an airtime of 11 hours and 50 minutes. While well, some of the Lockheed engineers argued that the loss of the prototype delayed production by more than a year, Bodie recounts Kelsey making the exact opposite argument. The crash allowed Hap Arnold to sell the necessary officials and politicians on the plane on its record performance, without having to justify it with hard data. Kelsey estimated the crash actually saved Lockheed about a year on getting the next series out. However, aviation historian Martin Caden argues that the loss of the prototype meant that technical problems that would have been identified in testing were not discovered until the aircraft saw combat, resulting in the loss of many pilots' lives. Bodie notes that it was the only American fighter aircraft in production throughout the American involvement in the war. More than 10,000 were produced. So many were ordered that Lockheed was swamped. As the Online Museum of Aviation History explains, it was basically a hand-built airplane. It was never meant to be mass-produced. All skin sections were butt-joined, using flush riveting, and all flight controls were metal-covered. The total order was expected to be only 50 aircraft, so when orders started coming in by the hundreds, Lockheed had to scramble to find room to increase production. Over lunch, Lockheed's president, Bob Gross, made a deal to buy the old 3G whiskey distillery for $20,000 to make room for an additional production line. Despite being produced in a whiskey distillery, the P-38 would rack up an impressive war record. P-38s would fly more than 130,000 missions and shoot down more Japanese fighters than any other aircraft. Also well suited for reconnaissance, some 90% of Allied area film captured over Europe during the war was taken by a P-38. It was used by some of America's most prolific aces, including Dick Bong, America's top flying ace of the war, and because of its impressive flying range when fitted with additional fuel tanks. P-38s were used in the April 1943 Operation Vengeance, the mission to assassinate Japanese Admiral Isikuro Yamamoto, a turning point in the war. And it all started by crashing into a golf course. Bodie quoted Kelsey, who eventually became a Brigadier General. While most historians have never been curious about how a washed-out aircraft with less than 12 hours total flight time could justify immediate go-ahead for production, has always been a source of amazement to me.
and yet in the end he loved the aircraft. That comfortable cluck, he said, would fly like hell, fight like a wasp upstairs, and land like a butterfly. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. So this is this is a great story. I think one of the amazing things about, about the XP-38 is how it really shows and how lucky everything that came together was. Because oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely shouldn't have been built. I mean, it was absolutely... They didn't want pursuit fighters, so they had to make up a whole new category for them. Uh, Lockheed had never Wild. built anything like this, and no one thought that they could possibly... That the Army really did not want uh, non-traditional designs, and they had one prototype, and they it's crashed right. it into... Yeah. A, into a golf course. So, yeah, who would have guessed at this point we get that we yeah. build 10,000 of these things? Yeah, it's uh, it's really an extraordinary story because really the P-38, which was an extraordinary aircraft uh, and was uh, certainly the dominant Army Air Force aircraft yeah. of the Pacific, uh, but uh, uh, the the really an amazing aircraft that really shouldn't have gotten built. And it's it's amazing set of coincidence that allowed it to be built. Uh, and so it really makes for such a good story that they... That they knowing that 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 uh, this was going to be difficult to do, they took their one prototype, they flew it across publicly. the country, and then somehow leveraged the crash. Yeah, publicly. Yeah, made it made a huge deal of it, and then leveraged the fact that it crashed in order to get it approved, even though they didn't, you know, hadn't even worked kinks out of a prototype. It's a great story. Absolutely. Really I mean, story. it's just it's truly amazing, and this is, I mean, it's an iconic plane. It's uh, that you know the the double the absolutely the double yeah. boom and all all of this stuff was just a, it's 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 one of these planes that you'll still see uh, because of how iconic. Yeah. And they use it in all kinds of imagery. And I mean, I think it's, I've always thought it was a really, really cool plane. And of course, they were, uh, for their time, they yeah, were really, yeah, really yeah. fast and uh, especially uh, effective. Um, it is really interesting that we had fallen so far behind and that we could have been, uh, I mean, like the Air Cobra was was not an especially, you know, the, the one, the other one that came out of this was not an especially good plane yeah. and was not especially well fit for, yeah. you know, what we ended up, what we would have needed. Uh, you look at it and you see, you know, how, how, wrong-headed uh, we were in terms of uh, kind of how what we thought the wars would look like and what kind of planes we thought we would need and mm -hmm. you know ultimately I think what we learned during World War II is that I mean the planes were vital uh, the Pacific yeah. was was one with planes. Uh, yeah, we we were definitely behind when the war started, and, yeah. and of course, there's. A, I mean, the Navy had brilliant planes too. Oh, yeah. And when we talk about the numbers in this, like you know, the numbers shot down and stuff like that, the Navy that's that's for the Army Air Forces. Yes. Uh, the Hellcats shot down more than the P-38s did, but for the Army Air Forces, especially with the distances that were involved in the Pacific War, I mean, it was an absolutely extraordinary plane. And then, you know, that was that you see that the most in the you know the mission to kill Yamamoto. But yeah. uh, uh, and I mean, they, you know, they they just allowed you to, you know, take off that distance and then be where the Japanese didn't think they could be. And I mean, it, it just, it was, it's a cool plane in so many ways. So yeah. fast. It was a very good uh, dive bomber, fighter bomber, yeah. uh, and uh, it, which it was not really intended to be. It had enough space in it that it was uh, a fantastic observation plane. It's, its biggest use really uh, in the European theater was as an observation aircraft. Most of the, uh, the observation photos were taken by P-38s. I mean, they were used as fighter aircraft too, yeah. but I mean, they're, you know, they're more the Mustangs and the, yeah. and the, and, and the, the British planes, the Spitfires and stuff. But uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's an absolutely extraordinary plane. And when you hear its story, 
you yeah. know, this is this is not one of those we know this was going to go from the start sort of thing. It was kind of built out of desperation, and it all comes down to this this one flight by this one guy in the one airplane that they had, yeah. and it changed history. And that's that's the part of the fun part of being the history guy is a story like this story. Yeah, I mean, this was a this was a story essentially forgotten. This is the kind of thing that who yeah. would know who would know this, and yet it was it truly was just almost an accident that everything came together the way it did. And there were so many different places where it could have failed. Uh, yeah. A passion project by two guys. Yeah. And, two guys and, who clearly had a very, uh, had a, had a better vision ultimately. And I mean, at the time, yeah, I guess the we, air, have, we could have, yeah, the army air forces right? did. Yeah. And we, and to some yeah, extent, and they couldn't have yeah. known that uh, until, you know, that hindsight. Now we're able to say, Oh, dang, glad, I'm really glad they were there to, it to is, have yeah. that vision. Well, they, but, they had no money for pursuit fighters. So they just made up a whole new category and said, Oh, it's an interceptor. That's, that's it. That, <laughs> I mean, that's really, it's, it's honestly, it's funny that they, that they did that. And honestly, that they got away with it, that, they, you know, this they was utterly <laughs> gamed the system and it ends up with the, with the P 38 lightning, which is this, this, Brilliant and and such original aircraft and uh, you know that the the, uh, the Germans were very much into non traditional you know designs yeah. and you know non standard designs and things like that. But uh, it's amazing to see the Americans doing that because it's yeah. our, our airframes aside from that all you know. I mean, whatever you want to say about the Hellcat, it's it's a bigger you know version of the Wildcat. Yeah. Right? We, we, I mean, we moved we, from we, the, we, the Wildcat yeah, to the Hellcat, and then even yeah, to the we Bearcat. Were, we were, you know, these yeah, were all... our designs were were really quite standard, and yeah. and then you know along comes the P thirty eight, which is this, this completely unique you know, craft. Absolutely, I mean you just look at it you know it's different that's uh that's yeah, that's yeah, she's, and she's a beauty i they're they're just yeah. beautiful planes and there's i mean there's just almost nothing uh, nothing like it before or after that quite looked like that and did what that did uh but of course yeah, you know once the... we moved to to jet aircraft i think everything everything kind of changed after that near uh how you build a it plane did, though that, i mean that was and matter of fact it's an interesting transition for that because yeah. some of the things that we learned about jet aircraft we learned because of that issue when the when the when the P thirty eight was diving, it could go very it would actually get to transonic speeds. Uh, and then that, that's where they found that the instability and, and you know the, and and they solved some of those problems of transonic yeah. speeds with the P thirty eight. So it really was in many ways a transition point between radial aircraft and, and jet aircraft. Uh, and you know, partly because of the mere power of those two engines. So it was certainly wasn't the only two engine, you know, heavy fighter of the war. But I mean it was uh, it was almost as light as a one-engine fighter with the power of a two-engine fighter, yeah. and, and uh, you know the, the pilots, you know, just love the things. Absolutely. Well, and, and we'll we'll talk about one of those pilots. You mentioned him here, Dick yeah. Long, but uh, we'll yeah, we'll yeah. talk about Great, him. greatest ace of the Army Air Force. You know, the war. Yeah, Absolutely he, incredible story yeah, there he, too. He, he made incredible use of that aircraft. Yeah, and you know this was the the fact. One of the things that I mean, he's able to make use of. You talk about in this one is that the uh, the way they did the the machine gun is that he had much greater range than than most uh, most other of other planes that we you know that he could have possibly been flying. Yeah, had yeah, a greater had range those, on that. Had all those cannons in the nose of that yeah. thing. It actually, was pretty. And you didn't have to, as opposed to the other uh, most of our other fighters, you didn't you weren't shooting out of the wings. Yeah. Uh, and having to have a point where the bullets cross, you, it was all shooting out of the nose, which yeah. which I mean, it made for a, an aircraft that had a greater range uh if you were a good shot of course dick bong always said he wasn't a good shot but uh you know <laughs> those things we just threw out a lot of lead and yeah. so that, you know that'll well and that was partially that they were able to accomplish that to some extent because of the the unique design that it came out of the nose yeah yeah that, and that the extra power yeah. and, the, and the and 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 then you know so it's i mean it's 
strange. And you know, it's funny because you know this uh, this is nacelles before Star Trek. So yeah, <laughs> it's it really you almost, is. You almost you almost see a little bit of the of the Enterprise in the design yeah. of the. P-38 it's it's such a cool looking plane. I mean, that's just that's there's no it way is, around yeah. that. That's and partially because of just how unique it was. It's interesting to me, you know, the X the XP thirty eight, the one that uh-huh. they build of the prototype. It looks really very very similar to the the final design. Uh, sometimes it does, but it, it also it looks almost like you know like one of those Howard Hughes racing planes. I yeah. Mean, I think it was hand built and you know but from you know formed aluminum and and you know counter you know counter screwed yeah. aluminum and stuff like that uh and so i mean it it certainly looks experimental yes uh but yeah but it i mean you look at it you have no no question it's a p38 but yeah. it looks like it's designed as a racing plane not as a not as a as a fighter plane yeah uh and you can you can see lockheed in there you can see some you know you can see some of the version of the electra in the in the you know the the, you know, the frame the shape that sort of thing you know not obviously the the two boom design and stuff like that but when you look at the body of it you can certainly kind of see the the, the descent of the electric in there but i mean it's it's just it's awesome because lockheed which who, who knew by the way that lockheed wasn't spelled that way right? that yeah that's a... they changed the spelling to, to be more common but uh uh, you know, Lockheed had never built anything like that, and and uh, that you know this was this was truly unique, truly just not like what we would have built, what we usually built, what we would have thought to build, right? Who wouldn't have built it? And, and you know, everything about that plane was so much more unique. I think there's a lot of people that are huge fans of the P thirty eight because of its performance and because of its design, who probably had no idea of how how strange and what a fantastic coincidence yeah. it was that that plane came into being because it really in no other era would it. I mean, no. you know, you, when you crash, when you crash your one prototype, uh, you know, that's usually not a good usually, sign. Well, because you know, usually don't you know. have money to build a second one. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, that's usually, that's usually a sign that it's not worth to get the second one, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I did, I mean, because the F-14, which was another amazing plane, you know, those, the, the original five were hand screwed together, you know, because they, they had such a tight frame to build them. And, you know, they can, again, it was another one where the cost, they almost didn't build that and became an iconic aircraft. And this is a kind of a similar story here. But, I mean, in, you know, during the war, they were developing so much. Uh, that it's that uh, it's extraordinary that they didn't just throw this project aside and go on to something else. Because it looked the weird. Best. Maybe and... we would have had was the Air Cobra or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, because it, it looked weird and the, you know the plane wrecked. And, it's, and it it's hard have, to know. There were some teething issues because oh, yeah. it was put together very quickly, uh, and so it did that, have some yeah. pilots died because of that because of that transonic issue that they would have in a dive and things like that. But uh, uh, but it's I mean it still turned out to be you know and I mean we built ten thousand yeah. ten thousand. Well, them. I think you mentioned yeah. that it's is uh, the only plane or one of the only planes that we continually produce throughout the whole war. Uh, and we, yeah, we, we I, I think what so we many. say in the episode is it's the only fighter plane that we built okay. through the entire war. And uh, actually, you know, some people kind of argue whenever you say something like that. That's fair, some yeah. people kind of argue with that. But I think they're really talking about it. The, the Wildcat was actually made through the, you know, through oh. the entire existence of the war. Uh, uh, obviously, so you know, it was you know, used at the beginning huh? war. Yeah, we were, yeah, for, for, you know, for some reason. Uh, <laughs> but uh, again, I mean, it's I, I think some of the stats in there are really talking about yeah. Army Air Force planes and not necessarily talking about the Navy planes. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, you know that that we were you know building that before the war and that we were still building it after the war and it was still a top in I mean it was it hadn't been relegated to a second round you know that we were you know just building for you know secondary fronts or something like that I mean it was still yeah. a top in fighter when the when the war ended. You know I uh, I was looking recently at a uh, at a map that was showing distances uh, and I think it was a, some of it was about was about talking about that range that you could send uh, escort fighters for bombers. And the, the one that went the farthest was was the P thirty eight, and it was so mm-hmm. far that to be, I mean, to be honest, you were flying outside of any reasonable range of where you would have been escorting yeah. bombers. They actually they used but, it as, they used it as a pathfinder. They would yeah. use it to lead 
uh, bomber groups in, wow. and or other fighter groups and stuff in because uh, because it had the range to do that. Yeah, that's crazy. I think that's really because with the two booms, it had so much power that it could carry more extra fuel in drop yeah. tanks. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, even beyond, and that's one of the reasons why you know the, the you know the P fifty one is the great American fighter yeah. of the European theater of operation, uh, and the P forty seven did quite well in both of those. But the reason the P thirty eight kind of dominated with the Army Air Force in the Pacific is because uh, the the ranges are much different. I mean, it's yeah. a much you know you're fighting across the ocean, uh, and so I mean even even when you're talking about those, you know, flying from from you know the bases in England to Berlin. That's nothing compared to flying from you know oh, yeah. bases in the in the in the, well, in the Solomons to you know Formosa. Absolutely, yeah. And they, I mean, we had we had bases. Well, gosh, toward the beginning of the war, uh, you know, some we were fairly limited on bases that yeah. we could, and we needed mm-hmm. to uh, we needed air support all over the place. And so that's it. Uh, it's it's incredible just how much, and of course we we solved some of that with with naval planes and carriers and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, especially at the beginning of the war, you know, we had those bases in Australia and uh, New Zealand and stuff like that. And those were, I mean, they were covering as much of the Pacific as we could. And the the P thirty eight was perfect for that kind of uh, mm-hmm. that that kind of theater. Uh, the other, you know, this almost seemed to be like a kind of a make it or break it for Lockheed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems it seems like this mm-hmm. is what in terms of where Lockheed was going to be in the future. This was a determining point. Uh, they, and we've, I well, mean, they, gosh. they were they were building oh, yeah. the Mitchell. They were building a bomber that was based essentially on the Electra. But I mean, this this was for Lockheed. This was their yeah. first attempt to make something in that fighter. And you know, Lockheed would in, end up being an important player as we move into the jet yeah. agent, etc. So this was this was certainly out of the box for Lockheed, and it required that them that they kind of put together. Uh, something uh, and, and they had had a, like a runner-up for other fighter design is why they were given the opportunity to apply. No one in the industry really thought that Lockheed could do yeah. this. So this really did build, you know, Lockheed and and you know, which would become you know a major you know aircraft designer and builder for well, for decades. And one of the ways you see that is the fact that they really were not prepared. Uh, to build ten thousand planes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, no one told them that was going to happen, right? Yeah, but it's amazing that yeah, they yeah, were they were able a, to. I mean, they they. That's a good story. Yeah, they bought the brewery next door. Yeah. They start building airplanes. Yeah, certainly, so. that's you know that's where some, a place that could have gone wrong too is you you have uh, yeah that you you buy the successful plane and they just can't they just can't fulfill the orders. Yeah. Uh, but well, especially because I mean this wasn't made out of plywood. This no. was this was made out of aluminum. The aluminum had to be very specifically formed. And yeah, so this is that. I mean, that's not the only time that happened during no. the war. But I mean they. They had hand built a couple, you know. Well, they hand built one, yeah. uh, and then they get an order for fifty or a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand. And they're like, oh. and that that <laughs> that really says a lot about what the United States was able to yeah. do during that war in terms of production. I mean, and, you know, that's too, I mean, you know, the Japanese did that when we were bombing, and the Germans did that when. I mean, everybody, the aircraft production in the war was incredible. It was incredible, but I mean, the the fact that you could upsize. For uh, someone who had never built that at all, yeah. and to build this, you know, that many of these, it is it is extraordinary. It says a lot about the home front in in the Second World War as well. And it literally built in a brewery. I mean, that's that's as good a story you'll get. Absolutely. Hold my beer. Yeah, and this and you know this is a, <laughs> uh, this was a, this was a plane that I think it really made a difference. Uh, I, I it might be difficult to say it was the you know like the most important plane of the war or anything like that. And I don't think I want to make that claim, but I think it was an important plane. Uh, yeah. It certainly made a difference, yeah, and one that one that because of its range really did shift things. Yeah. I mean, I think if you I think if you look at the most kills of the Army Air Force, probably the P fifty one and the P forty seven might have more total kills. Yeah, uh, but I mean, in terms of the uh, Pacific, I mean, it was absolutely the yeah. best 
Army Air Force plane of the Pacific. Uh, and uh, the Navy planes didn't have nearly the range to do with that, yeah. what it was doing either in terms of, you know, protecting bombers and stuff like that. So they're really kind of a different class. So, I mean, it really did, you know, make a significant difference in the war in the Pacific. You might, you might say, anybody will argue anything, but you might say it was the most important uh, uh, fighter design of the war in the Pacific and, yeah. and was outclassing its, its Japanese competitors by the time that it was in full production. Which is incredible because uh, cert- at the beginning of the war, we were not outclassing yeah, the, the know, Zeros. We were not and... outclassing them. And, and you know, we, you know, our, our, there were a lot of things. We had a, a much better pipeline for pilots yes. and stuff like that. I mean, the, you know, the bottom line is that the, the Japanese started out with numbers that they couldn't replace. And yeah. when it became a war of attrition, we could replace them much better. But So, I mean, there's a whole lot that goes into that. But I mean, you, you, you would have to say that it was a significant design that significantly impacted the war. Actually, on both sides, too, because the range did make a difference when they could start escorting in the, in the European theater. The fuel mixes, there are a lot of different reasons why it wasn't as effective in, in Europe, but it was still an important fighter there. Uh, you'd say that it impacted the war and it, and it came about by coincidence and it's hard to imagine you know what the war how different the war would have been uh if the yeah. army had said out oh, no you crashed into a into a golf course that that's a sign we shouldn't build it as opposed to the one we should that's i mean that's where the end you know of the of the of videos you know saying like yeah why no one ever ask a question about yeah. how this got into production given it's you know given its record well if you're a long-time listener of the podcast then we know that you love history and There are lots of ways that you can do more with the History Guy. There are ways to support us. But there's another thing that you can do that really is is just something fun you can do. And that is that we are doing a number of trips with the Mm -hmm. History Guy. We are doing them all over the place. Travel with the History Guy. Yeah. So, so this is this is a great opportunity. You know, we uh, we've been trying to put these together. A lot of things happened, COVID and all sorts of things, kind of put the kibosh on it. But we now have got a couple of different opportunities, and it's a chance. I'll be there, and I, I promise I will get to know you all as much as we can, uh, and in these uh, trips. So we have uh, we have a couple that are open right now. Uh, one is in Washington D.C., which we haven't talked as much about. That's in next March, uh, and it's a it's a three day trip, uh, and it covers all your hotel. It covers most of your meals. It covers all the tours. Goes to a lot of uh, really great places uh, you know ford theater and mount vernon as well as the you know the library of congress and and uh, the national archive uh, as well as the smithsonian and, and you know the the, the, the white house uh, capitol building so i mean i think it's just going to be a hoot and a half it's a coach trip uh, lots of space left on that one and you'll be on the bus with me and and so we can talk about history well afterwards when we have dinner and stuff i'll be uh, i'll be around so if you want to get to know the history guy and if you want to enjoy history with a bunch of other history lovers that trip's going to be a lot of fun uh, and the other trip, of course, is to the United Kingdom. Still lots of slots open on that one. That's next June. Uh, and that's, that's I think, going to be a lot. Of, it's not a standard London trip. We're going to go down to the Cotswolds. We're going to get to shoot longbows. We're going to get to uh, taste British cocktails. we got a lot of fun things that are actually on that list that are things that you don't typically do when you when you visit London. As well, a couple of things. We go to Westminster and we'll go see, you know, Elizabeth Tower and stuff like that, too. So, uh, uh, again... Uh, this is the, you know this is just an opportunity where you can go. I mean, I think we have very competitive rates. I think when we looked at what the, we're able to do for the tours and the hotels and et cetera, uh, that these are these are actually a very good deal that you couldn't really match if you're going on your own. Uh, and you, you know, get all these guided tours by you know experts, and you get to be there with the history guy to talk over his. So if you want to get to meet me and get to know me, if you want to be with other history lovers when you go on vacation, they're both worth your time. Uh, and any other trips that we schedule, there might be more, all going to be, those are on, on the webpage, which is thehistoryguy.com, thehistoryguy, all one word, dot com. Uh, and you, go, you also can get all of our uh, episodes, all of our YouTube episodes, all of our podcast episodes, uh, uh, our store, everything that you want to do is there. And then we've got information on all the trips that are available. So it's thehistoryguy.com. 
Next up, the History Guide tells the story of the Army Air Force's ace of aces, Dick Bong. It has often been said that war is the most dramatic of human endeavors. And of the millions of people who served throughout the globe in the Second World War, there are countless stories of those who went above and beyond to serve their country, to protect their comrades, and to do their part to try to bring an end to the most destructive war in human history. And among those stories is the story of Richard Ira Bong, a U.S. Army fighter pilot in the Pacific who was so successful that he became America's ace of aces. The story of the top fighter ace of the U.S. Army Air Force deserves to be remembered. Richard Ira Bong was born September 24, 1920, in Superior, Wisconsin. The oldest of nine children born to Carl Bong, a Swedish immigrant and American Dora Bryce. He was known as Dick and grew up on a farm near the small town of Poplar, Wisconsin. He had an interest in planes from a young age and saw airmail planes fly over the farm when President Calvin Coolidge was at his summer White House in Superior. He recalled that the mail plane flew right over our house and I knew that I wanted to be a pilot. He attended the Superior State Teachers College beginning in 1938, where he enrolled in the Civilian Pilot Training Program, started just that year to train pilots, both for civilian roles and the possibility of war. On May 29, 1941, Bong enlisted in the Army Air Corps Aviation Cadet Program. The cadet program had been accelerated in 1940, reducing training time to meet a potential demand for pilots. The U.S. Army Air Corps tripled between July of 1940 and July of 41 from 51,000 to over 152,000 men. Bong was one of the many trained in this period. He was trained at Tulare in Gardner Fields in California, as well as Luke Fields in Arizona. He trained in a BT-13 and later in an AT-6 Texan. His gunnery instructor in Arizona was Barry Goldwater, later a senator and presidential nominee, who said that Bong was a very bright student and was already showing his talent as a pilot. Bong earned his pilot wings and was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Army Air Force Reserves on January 9, 1942, just a month after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Bong was kept at Luke Field for several months, where he worked as a gunnery instructor until he was transferred to Hamilton Field near San Francisco, where he trained to fly the Lockheed P-38 Lightning. The P-38 was designed in response to a 1937 specification for the U.S. Army Air Corps seeking a twin-engined interceptor having the tactical mission of interception and attack of hostile aircraft at high altitude. The P-38 was the first American military plane to reach speeds over 400 miles per hour in level flight. It would become a staple of American forces, especially in the Pacific, where it was the primary long-range fighter for most of the war. According to General George Kenney, the P-38 had twice the range of any other fighter in the Air Force. These are lethal weapons. Their one purpose, the sole reason for their existence, is to knock enemy planes out of the sky. A number of stories have come out of Bong's time at Hamilton. On June 12, 1942, he was cited for buzzing the house of a pilot who had just gotten married. The same day, several other pilots were cited for flying a loop around the center span of the Golden Gate Bridge. Bong has often been accused of looping the bridge, though he always denied it later. However, he did apparently fly low down Market Street in San Francisco, so low that he knocked some laundry off a line and waved at people in the lower floors of some of the buildings. General George Kinney, commander of the 4th Air Force, remembers dressing Bong down for the stunt, saying, Now, I don't need to tell you again how serious this matter is. If you didn't want to fly down Market Street, I wouldn't want you in my Air Force, but you're not to do it anymore. And I mean what I say. Kinney made Bong help the woman with her laundry. 
Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Allied Commander of the Southwest Pacific Area, chose Kenny over General James Doolittle to command the 5th Air Force, who were flying out of Australia. Bong was handpicked by Kenny as one of 50 P-38 pilots brought to Australia in September. Bong was assigned to the 9th Fighter Squadron of the 49th Fighter Group, nicknamed the Flying Knights. Although he served briefly with the 35th Fighter Group in New Guinea, waiting for P-38s to be delivered to the 49th. The situation at the time was serious, with American units low on supplies, spare parts, and planes. We never seemed to have more than two or three days' supply of gasoline, ammunition, and bombs on hand, General Kenny remembered. In a P-38, he and several others engaged a larger force of Japanese planes near Buna, New Guinea on December 27, 1942. Bong scored his first aerial victory here, shooting down two Japanese planes himself. He was awarded the Silver Star for the action. On January 7th, his squadron attacked a convoy, bringing reinforcements to New Guinea, and he shot down two more planes. The very next day, he was escorting a bomber formation when he and seven accompanying pilots attacked approximately 20 enemy fighters. The citation for his distinguished flying cross said that Lieutenant Bong shot down an enemy aircraft with a long burst at a distance of 200 yards. A difficult shot, and already his fifth confirmed kill. Lieutenant Dick Bong had become a fighter ace not two weeks after his first engagement. Meanwhile, actions in the Southwest Pacific Theater were continuing at speed as the Allies took the initiative and went on the offensive. By February 9th, the last Japanese had withdrawn from Guadalcanal, and Allied troops were engaging in the arduous campaign to retake New Guinea. Bong participated in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, where American planes attacked transports and destroyers carrying nearly 7,000 reinforcements to New Guinea. He shot down a Mitsubishi A6M-0, known as a formidable fighter aircraft, in the combat. And eight transports were destroyed in a significant defeat for the Japanese and a major propaganda victory for the Army Air Force. Said General MacArthur, we have achieved a victory of such completeness as to assume the proportions of a major disaster to the enemy. By April, he shot down five more planes, becoming a double ace, and was promoted to first lieutenant. On July 26th, leading a flight of 10 P-38s over New Guinea, he spotted a formation of 20 Japanese planes. He led three attacks on the formation, shooting down two of the aircraft himself. When 15 more Japanese planes arrived, Bong, disregarding the greatly superior numbers of the enemy, attacked the new planes, taking down another two himself. In all, outnumbered 3 to 1, Bong's team shot down 11 planes without a loss, Bong himself taking four. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for the action. First Lieutenant Bong's unquestionable valor in aero combat is in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service, the citation reads. In August, he was promoted again to captain. An engagement later that year nearly cost him his life. According to General Kenny, Bong saw a Japanese fighter chasing down an injured P-38, which was flying towards a nearby cloud bank for cover. Bong turned off one of his engines and drew the attention of the enemy. Once the other plane was clear, he flipped his engine back on and outraced the Japanese pilot back to base. Unfortunately, on his return, he noticed that the plane was damaged worse than he thought. Half of his tail was gone, and as he prepared to land, he found that his ailerons were also damaged. When he finally touched down, he discovered that he had no brakes and one of the wheels was punctured. He ended up in a ditch, alive, but his plane was a total loss. The plate shield behind his head was pitted with dents, and the plane had 50 bullet holes in it. Both fuel tanks were punctured, but a self-sealing rubber system had kept them from leaking. In another engagement, he was circling above the jungle where a pilot had ditched. Below him, soldiers had gotten in a rubber boat to cross a lake to get to the pilot, and Bong sighted a crocodile following them. 
He dipped low to the water, sighted, and blasted the encroaching crocodile with a 20mm round. Captain Bong was granted leave stateside when he reached 21 confirmed kills. He was able to spend the holidays in 1943 at home in Wisconsin, where he met Marjorie Vattendahl and began dating her. He also participated in a ship launching, where the Welderettes named him their number one pinup boy. When asked how he was so good at what he did, he modestly answered, Oh, I'm just lucky, I guess. A lot of Japanese happen to get in my way. I keep shooting plenty of lead, and finally some of them get hit. When he returned to the Pacific in 1944, he christened his plane Marge, and had his girl's face painted on the nose. He was reassigned to the 5th Air Force HQ, but allowed to freelance. During this period, two of the other aces in the region were lost in combat. Neil Kirby, with 22 victories, was shot down on March 5th. Thomas Lynch, a lieutenant colonel with 20 kills, was flying with Captain Bong on March 8th when they spotted and strafed a barge. On a second pass, Lynch was hit, and his plane exploded before he could ditch. Lynch bailed out, but he was too close to the ground for his parachute to deploy. Bong stayed in the area long enough to confirm that he hadn't survived. The deaths of the other aces made an impact back in the States. Kenny received a radio communication that expressed concern over the high loss rate of pilots who shot down many enemy aircraft. A case in point is Captain Bong. The radio wondered if the captain shouldn't be sent home for a time for his own safety. Bong had, on April 12th, been credited with three more victories, which brought his total to 28, officially beating Eddie Rickenbacker's 26 during World War I. Kenny made Bong a major and took the chance to send him home. Rickenbacker and Kenny had earlier promised cases of scotch to ever beat Rickenbacker's record first, and both of them sent along a case. For three months, he was on leave in the United States, doing publicity tours, urging civilians to buy bonds, and generally supporting the war effort. In addition to his tours, he had requested to take a gunnery course. By his own admission, he wasn't a good shot, and got his victories by flying as close as possible to his target, so he'd be sure to hit them. When he got back, he was put in charge of gunnery training and told not to engage except in self-defense. On October 10th, he accompanied his trainees, shot down two more planes, only in self-defense, of course. Bong, still officially a gunnery instructor and not required to fly combat missions, continued to find ways to do so. And between October 10th and November 15th, he engaged in unusually hazardous sorties and shot down eight more planes. He was recommended for and received the Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty. MacArthur gave it to him personally with a short congratulations. Major Richard Ira Bong, who has ruled the air from New Guinea to the Philippines, I now induct you into the society of the bravest of the brave, the wearers of the Congressional Medal of Honor of the United States. By December 17th, Bong got his 40th victory, and Kenny ordered him home. In fact, Kenny was convinced that Bong actually had many more victories than that. Stories abounded that he had given away kills to wingmen when he had really done the shooting. He had flown... 146 combat missions, and had 400 hours of combat time. Richard Irabong married Marjorie Battendahl on February 10, 1945. He participated in war bond drives and PR activities, and having already given so much in the service's country, took on one of the most dangerous jobs a nation could ask, becoming a test pilot for Lockheed, testing their new P-80 Shooting Star jet. The P-80 testing program had proven extremely dangerous, and veteran test pilot Milo Bircham had died in a crash of the third production prototype in October 1944. On August 6, 1945, Bong took off in his 12th flight in the plane. A Lockheed service mechanic later reported, We knew something was wrong when we saw a puff of black smoke come out just as he leveled off in flight. Within four minutes of takeoff, the plane exploded, just some 50 feet off the ground over North Hollywood. 
A witness quoted in the Los Angeles Times saw Bong eject from the plane, but he was too low for his parachute to open, and he was caught in the explosion. America's ace of aces died the same day the first atomic bomb was detonated over Hiroshima. His death shared front-page news with the first reports. General Kinney wrote that we not only loved him, we boasted about him. We were proud of him. That's why we each of us got a lump in our throats when we read that telegram about his death. His country and the Air Force must never forget their number one fighter pilot. Eddie Rickenbacker said that Bong made his final contribution to aviation in the dangerous role of test pilot of an untried experimental plane, a deed that places him among the stout-hearted pioneers who gave their lives in the conquest of sky and space. In his 2020 book, Race of Aces, veteran combat correspondent Dick Bruning notes that of among American fighter pilots in the Second World War, only 5% became aces. And yet those 5% accounted for half of all enemy aircraft claimed in air-to-air -air combat. And simply put, that means that a huge burden was placed on the shoulders of a very few. A burden we can barely even comprehend today. When Major Dick Bong died, he was just 24 years old. In his brief life, he became one of the most decorated pilots in American history, having earned the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, two Silver Stars, seven Distinguished Flying Crosses, and 15 Air Medals. So Richard Ira Bong. It's uh, mm -hmm. difficult to say that he doesn't have a, a truly iconic name. <laughs> Uh, Dick I would, Bong. I would say half the comments on, on the YouTube video are "What a great name, Dick Bong." Yeah, there's. But, a... uh, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know that either of those had quite the connotation that people are doing to make you blush a little bit. Yeah, I think he was uh, at the time. I don't think it was quite as quite as odd. Uh, he certainly. Well, I mean, he was. Uh, he was a rock star. The oh yeah. Babes loved him. You know, he, he did his he did the bomb tours and stuff like that, and they thought he was that he was quite handsome. And he is he is almost the quintessential hero when you look yeah. at him. He's you know he lives a little on the edge. He's not always just straight follow the rules guy. Uh, yeah. Incredibly talented, uh, yeah. and you know, uh, in in a way, well, top the top Army Air Force fighter ace of the war. Absolutely. So none of those none of those guys in the Mustangs or in the P forty seven shot down as many as he did in his P thirty eight. Yeah, he's and you even know, even long after he was supposed to, even when they're saying don't do that anymore. Stop that. Still... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, he, he's the whole the whole story. I mean, him him is you know when he's getting in training and he he buzzes he's buzzing the the house of the guy who gets married <laughs> and. Uh, 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 major or the the general is is like I wouldn't want you in my army if you didn't want to fly down Market Street, but <laughs> don't, do, don't, do, don't do that. <laughs> I mean it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he knocked laundry off the line or something. They made him go help do the laundry. Yeah, this it's yeah, a, he's all entertaining. He's, yeah, he's he's uh, you know there's a, there's a lot of pilots like that. I mean, yeah. I was just reading one the other day about a guy who took his B his B forty seven under uh, uh, under a bridge in Minneapolis. Yeah, uh, and I mean you know you're not supposed to do that. Or, and it was the Mackinac Bridge, right? So that's in uh, yeah. in Michigan, is that right? But uh, and uh, and they said, oh, that's awesome. You're a great pilot. You can't fly anymore. That yeah, no, that. no, so, you're done. <laughs> uh, so he was you know he I mean and, and the funny thing is you know probably the greatest modern hero that we have is Maverick, right? Yeah. Who you know buzzes the tower <laughs> and and he's I mean, it's clear that that Top Gun character uh, has the same flavor as these. I mean, oh, I, yeah. you know, he, he has to have been inspired by Dick Bong because, I mean, they, they, they have that same sort of 
roguish personality while at yeah. the same time having a talent that they can't deny. Well, and it's, uh, and so it's it, got, it is interesting like cuz uh, you know with with Maverick when he buzzes the tower, I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, that'd get you that'd get you kicked out of the service pretty much right away." As you don't do that. And of course, you know, Maverick gets away with it, but that's also, I mean, so did uh, so did that <laughs> so did Dick Fong, yeah, so he, he did. He made it through and of course you wonder if there's I mean that's part of the part of the draw is that someone who's just so talented that no matter how much he pisses yeah. off the brass uh, they yeah. they just can't. Well, I mean he, he, he shot down 40 aircraft what was going to say, you know. But yeah, and I mean and he you know he did a lot of it. I mean it's again it's a really good story yeah. I and mean, we don't want to give away the whole episode but I mean there are lots of times when he was at least on the edge of disobeying oh, yeah. orders there. Uh, but he was he was they you know needed aggressive pilots who yeah. could do what he could do uh, and you know un, unquestioned in his talent at a time when that talent was needed so I mean, he's, he's, he's a great story yeah it's uh you know this this whole theater that he spends a lot of time in this you know the south uh, the southwestern uh, Pacific theater uh, that mm-hmm. especially during the you know the early parts of the war and this is that's kind of a part you know our first stuff we we talked about Europe first essentially when we entered mm-hmm. the war and they uh they really we've ignored in some ways you know what goes on in that southwest theater and it was a very extremely dangerous uh, well, theater. in some ways, you know, because if you think about the, you know, the pilots, the fighter pilots yeah. in European theater, you think about the Mustangs, yeah. but you think about the pilots in the Pacific, you think about the Navy pilots. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, I, I don't know that you got really a movie that talks about the Army Air Force pilots yeah. and the P-38s flying in the Pacific. And yet, you know, here's, I mean, this guy, he was, he was the top American ace of the Army Air Forces. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, so I, it is, a, it's a story that's really surprisingly not told as much as you would think that it would be. And it was a difficult place to fly. Yeah. I think you're facing a very difficult, different challenges than we're facing in the European theater, too. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's in a lot of those stories. I mean, they're coming in wildly outnumbered. Yeah. I mean, they were you know, extremely. Uh, they, he's in the middle of dogfights where they're five to one, which is like, you know, they, they have a surrounded they can't escape. Right? And they were they were talking about, you know, the, the difficulties of making sure that they, they had enough planes and that, you know, they were keeping they were keeping these planes supplied. And that's right. It was Europe first. Yes. Yeah, like yeah. we didn't have enough gas. We didn't yeah. have enough bullets. You know, we, it we, was. You know, we ammunition it was it was a bit of a thankless theater during that you know during those early parts and of course uh, it took us a it takes a while for the for the u.s to turn around and start really you know pouring resources into the pacific uh but we mm-hmm. we were always doing something i mean we, we were moving in the pacific even when we were uh, focusing on you know operation torch and stuff like that uh but this you know dick bong was yeah they were there the, they were in the shoestring era of oh, yeah. the pacific yeah, yeah when they were when they were definitely you know, an afterthought compared to what we yeah. were doing in, in Europe. Yeah, you know, the other thing it tells me, it's just how dangerous it is. I mean, in that, uh, it's, it was very rare. I mean, these aces, they were up in the air so much that eventually yeah. their number would come up. And, and uh, so it was extraordinary, Yeah, uh, you know, that he that he makes it where he makes it. And, I mean, and then, you know, of course, yeah, you know, the way that he dies is exactly how you'd expect, you know, Dick yeah. Bond. Absolute, absolute tragedy. Um, but yeah. especially because he, he doesn't end up actually seeing the end of the war. Uh, even though he was literally, uh, you know, they'd pulled him out of combat. That's yeah. a that's a, they that's a real tragedy. Stop that, yeah. tragedy. Same way, same way that George Welsh died too. You know, I mean, this, the, they they take those best pilots and then they put them in experimental aircraft, and that, you know, that's what well, happens. They want to they want to fly, uh, as yeah. we saw with Dick Bong. They try to they try to get him to you know do training and flight training and stuff like that, and he keeps somehow finding his way into yeah. shooting. <laughs> you're, you're only allowed to shoot in defense, and he gets another two two aircraft. Yeah, aircraft. he's yeah. He, well, and he's he's really. I mean, I can't say I didn't you know I didn't know him personally. But when you read when you read all the stuff about him, I mean, he seems to have been a a, a very humble guy. 
Uh, he yeah. never he he certainly uh, he doesn't act like he was as talented as he was as he as he must have been because yeah, yeah you ask him he's like I don't know I just shoot a lot at the planes and eventually they go down I'm like that was <laughs> insistent he wasn't a very good shot well, I mean had to be doing the, pretty well the story where yeah, he shoots yeah. the crocodile I'm like that's a hard target so I mean if you did actually <laughs> hit a crocodile with a t- <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a, I, I used to bullseye womp rats with my T16 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like I was just doing that for fun and it's so I, he might have been a better shot better much bigger than two meters <laughs> I th- he might have been a better shot than he was ever willing to uh to yeah. say exactly yeah, it, it does i mean you know it's hard to say because i mean when you, when you take those guys off you send them on war bond tours and stuff yeah. like that but i mean it, yes by all by all accounts uh he was a very he was very well liked and he was very modest and they always suggested that he was actually as opposed to trying to get credit for all yeah. the kills that he was often given up credit for kills that might have been his yeah there's there's always yeah. some controversy i mean if you if you read into him there are some people who want to say that he was trying to take credit for but when you when you really look at the stories it seems like there's many more instances uh where there 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 are pilots you know that were flying with him who said i don't i don't think i deserved that kill that he's you know that he's giving me credit mm-hmm. for uh which i it certainly seems to imply that he i honestly that he probably had more kills than he was officially credited for and that maybe that wasn't really all that important to him to be you know yeah. the top well you know his medal list which i mean oh that's, my God. that's always been uh, uh, I mean, it's certainly they're, they're deserved in his point, but I mean, there's always been questions about yeah. who gets awards and why they get the awards and stuff like that. And certainly, you know, yeah, yeah, for, for someone who, who broke the rules a lot, he, uh, he, he uh, certainly got, you know, yeah. received a lot of awards, including Highly the Medal decorated. of Honor. Yeah, which, you know, for, you know, no single action, but just kind of for his general, you're crazy and you shoot down a lot of It sure planes, seems you know, like they kind of, they're like, we've kind of run out of awards to give you. Uh, and like, yeah. you know, adding another air medal seems, seems uh, silly yeah. at this point. So how many of those can you have? So I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting as, as a uh, Medal of Honor award, yeah. uh, because it. Those are more often a single act of bravery, though. I mean, they went a lot of them went to general officers and stuff like that. Yeah. That really kind of had to do with their career. But uh, uh, you know, there, there were any number of those actions where I mean, he was taking on many more planes and he was saving other pilots' lives and things like that. Where sometimes in absolutely, uh, you know, ways that where a bunch more planes come in and no one would have no one would have batted an eye if yeah. he would have left, and instead he flies into him, and yeah, that's you know, he stayed. Uh, that's... So, so you can. I, I'm sure that there are people there, naysayers or whatever. But uh, I mean, I, I, I think Dick Bong was certainly the definition of a hero. Oh, yeah. uh, and you know, the and even if you, uh, I pretty much anybody getting in those planes was a hero because they were certainly risking their lives for yeah. their country. But you know, that idea that you know, 10 percent of the flyers, you know, killed you know something like 70 percent of the or half of the. What was it like? Ten percent killed half of the of the yeah. air to air kills in the war. Crazy. I mean, he was one of those that was making you know a huge difference. And you know, when you, when you shoot down forty enemy aircraft and forty air to air kills that are confirmed, yeah. uh, that you have to say that's a lot of pilots uh, that were saved, and that's a lot of troops yeah. on the ground that were saved because those, because those would have made a difference. Well, and of course, he played a role in uh, that that one action where he's shooting that shooting the transports. Uh, which ended up being a very significant. I mean, that was a significant. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah at Guadalcanal, yeah, yeah. huge difference. Yeah, yeah there's uh, the. I mean, he he did, and it's hard to say. I mean, you know, when you look at it, uh, at war, to find any like one person that you would say was like they made the difference, but certainly you can find some people who you'd say, I mean, they made a difference, uh, and it's yeah. it's it's because it's a war of numbers. There were many. Many pilots. There were many people on the ground. Uh, you know, none none of it was possible without without all of them. But you certainly, I mean, 
Dick Bong was yeah. was out there doing but something incredible. You find, I mean, you find like some some of the German aces on the on the fighting on the Eastern oh, yeah. Front, or you know, oh, had hundreds of kills. Sometimes wild. So yeah. Cowling was just covered, and and some of the naval pilots there that were you know the Mariana trigger shoot and stuff yeah. like that were there. I mean, they had they had hundreds of kills. Uh, in in uh, but uh, you know again in in the part of the war where you know they only ever had two days worth of ammunition. Yeah. Uh, and uh, with uh, with uh, I mean, this is a, almost a forgotten theater yeah. that he had this success. It's I mean, it's even more impressive. So certainly, uh, Dick Bong deserves to be remembered and if, if nothing else he represents a lot of forgotten flyers that were that were you know living in the jungle and, and putting their life on the line every day there yeah. in the pacific there is something uh, you know that whenever we get these these like these aces that are so successful it's interesting you know we try to bring them back uh to this to to the states and i guess the, mm-hmm. the idea, i mean the idea is that they can only no matter who you are you're can only be in the air so long. I mean, the other mm-hmm. aces that were close to where you know to the number of kills that that he was uh, that he had, uh, a lot of them yeah, ended up dying just short. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 simply you know a lot of lead flying. There's yeah. a lot of luck involved, and the more you fly, the more chance that something's going to get to you. Uh, and so that was you know, it's, it, but it is such a it's such a tragic story really that we brought him home yeah. specifically because they thought the press would be too bad if he were to die. Yeah. In combat, and then he takes on, of course, a very dangerous role, and that ends up. And you know, the, on the very day that we dropped the bomb on yeah. Hiroshima, I mean, the end of the war, you know, that's, that close. There's, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's some poetry in that story yeah. too. You know, true stranger fiction, etc. That uh, uh, I don't know, maybe you know, uh, maybe the war just couldn't end. You know, with with Dick Bong's. Yeah. You know, it's 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 incredible. You know, you you uh, at the end we find out. You know, he he was twenty four. <laughs> And yeah. that's, I mean, that's, that's younger yeah, than yeah. I am. That's a, that's... You hear that whole story. He's a major. He's done all this stuff. And he's, and, and yeah, he's, oh yeah, he's 24 he's years way, old. He's way younger. By the time <laughs> I was 24, I hadn't shot down a single Japanese not, fighter. Not a not single Not even one, one you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he, uh, yeah. He, but he was so willing to, I mean, you couldn't have, I, I don't think there, that he was, as long as the war was going, I don't think he wanted to, you know, not be doing anything. Uh, so and although yeah. you see a lot of these guys, they come home to and even after the war, they want to do dangerous test flying and stuff like that. They want to be on the, you know, the edge of aircraft technology. And that's just it's a very it's an extreme. And in dangerous. some ways, that's in some ways, that's a bigger contribution than what's yeah. going on in war, because it's really is advancing the technology. Yeah. And that's it's another way. I mean, the way that he died was also heroic because those oh, are yeah. people that put their lives on the line for you know, technological advancement that makes a difference. And they were always yeah, I mean, extremely yeah. dangerous. I mean, there's the lots and lots of test pilots. He's, he's just an extraordinary story. You don't want to say the war hinges on one person. No. Of course not. And you don't want to say that one person, no matter how heroic, is more important than others. But no. on the other hand, there's heroism that simply, simply deserves to be remembered. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's definitely on that list. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.